Greetings program, hello and welcome to Tronologically Speaking, a movie-by-minute podcast talking about Disney's 1982 movie Tron. This is Minute 67. I'm your host, Duncan Shields, and with me today is my well-mannered, well-dressed, and well-groomed guest co-host, Paul Sullivan. Welcome, Paul. Hey, how are you? I'm glad to be part of, uh, glad to be talking Tron here. (laughs) Excellent. Do you want to tell us a, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I've been a podcaster for a long time. Uh, anyone who's a baseball fan may be aware of uh, my old podcast, which was Sully Baseball. My new podcast, mm-hmm. which is now going into its second season, is called Locked On MLB, and we're doing quite well as part of the Locked On Podcast Network, and where we talk about baseball, all the baseball teams. And for those of you who are movie-by-minute podcast fans, uh, I've been a guest on a bunch of them, and I have my own, which is Bull Durham Minute, which is about my favorite baseball movie of all time. And I've also, I've been a comedian, I've appeared on some TV shows like Monk and Conan O'Brien, I've oh, been right a on. producer on a bunch of TV shows like The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and Axemen and The Bonnie Hunt Show, and nice. I've been on a bunch of HBO sports specials, and I directed an independent feature called I'll Believe You, which got some, uh, got a small theatrical release in the year 2007. And now I am loving life in the podcast sphere, and I've been sucked into the computer where I now have a glowing helmet and uh, (laughs) a frisbee full of information, and I love the movie Tron. It's a great film. Do you remember offhand uh, the first time that you saw it? Yeah, I actually do. Uh, I didn't see it in the theater. It's weird because it was right in my wheelhouse. I was 10 years old when it came out. Yeah, um, me too, yeah. I didn't see it because... My family had just moved. We were we were living overseas for a year. We came back and we caught up on like E.T. and Poltergeist and Rocky mm-hmm. Three, and for whatever reason, Tron just didn't make it into the into the queue. And okay, my friend, my my brother's friend, who's also you know our mutual friend Paul Connolly, we were living in Massachusetts at the time, and he loved Tron and he had it on videotape, okay. and so it must have been. 84 when it came out on tape and we watched it and i actually heard it was dumb because a couple of people i know had heard saw it thought oh, that was stupid and so yeah. okay i guess i'm not gonna go see it it's a dumb disney film like all right yeah you know, check please and he showed us it and i was instantly just blown away by it i thought it was spectacular i loved it i mean there was no like uh, warming up to it i thought it was exciting I thought it was slightly bananas, even yeah. as a 12-year-old watching it. I got that this is this is different, and I loved from the start that it just looked and felt like nothing I'd ever seen before, and, much, I, yeah. and I and I and I and I really got it. And I I and I've been a defender of the film. My when my family moved to California when I was in high school. And my friend Grant Kaloff, who's going to be a guest on the Bull Durham podcast, he's now a graphic novel writer. The two of us yeah. kind of bonded over the fact that, you know, Tron, everyone hates Tron. Why do they hate Tron? Tron's great. And <laughs> I've always felt that if you excuse some of the dialogue and the fact that the last third of the film really is just bad and crazy, and yeah. some of it you can't quite follow. Yeah. Anytime you have a film which you say, do you know what that reminded me of? Nothing. That's yeah. a uh, that's a sign of a of a film that I really that I really appreciate. I mean, I had the same reaction to a film like 
you know, being John Malkovich or, or, or um, yeah. you know, or Parasite for that matter, where yeah. it's just such a different moving, movie going experience. And I think, and I'm gonna, I'll get into this much more in the next minute, but I think it was really ahead of its time, even thematically. And I think yeah. that it was, it, it was, again, this is much more relevant for minute 68, but it was inadvertently profound. And yeah. I think that that's uh, the best way to describe this film, which is just filled with a tremendous amount of creativity and imagination that I think that because it wasn't a E.T. or Raiders or Superman level blockbuster, it kind of got swept under the rug as kind of along yeah. with a black hole as a, well, Disney was trying to find its way. Well, imagine if this was a blockbuster and this was the way that they found what kind of a decade we could have had of bananas Disney films like this. And I, I really, yeah. uh, I, I'll, I'll always have great affection for this film. There's a lot of the um, uh, the crew and and the director and the writer, they often lament how it didn't do that well because of the impact of it not doing that well. They invented a lot of tech for this movie that they just kind of threw away. So they're like, that, that didn't work. And so... But they were doing a lot of uh, digital recreation, a lot of like, uh, you know, digital backgrounds, a bunch of stuff that didn't really start coming into its own until like 10 years later. And they could have been doing that for 10 years, but they uh, but they didn't. So not just not just the world itself visually, but also just technically behind the scenes. They lost a lot. We sort of got here 10 years too late, but we could have been there 10 years earlier if they'd sort of, if this had been like an E.T. level blockbuster. Well, I just want to talk a little bit um if you want to just bring it down to like this minute particularly. So in this, in this minute we get, sorry, in this minute we get, uh, Tron is allowed past Dumont into the IO terminal to speak to Alan one. And he steps up to the communication portal while outside Sark brings in the logic probe to try to break down the guardians force fields. Yeah. And we've just had the scene before we've had that nice mm -hmm. little prayer by Dumont. And yeah, sort of, yeah. We, I was kind of a little bummed that I didn't get the prayer, you know, that, that's just such a, <laughs> you know, that he does the, the everything visible into the un, invisible. So I just get that you may pass. So it's almost like yeah. there's a little bit of a ritual. Like, let's just, let's honor what we're doing here and, yeah. uh, and treat this with a little bit of, a little bit of gravity here. But uh, yeah, I mean, Barnard Hughes, who's in the sort of MGM lion costume that he's in right now. That's another good way, yeah. And uh, in the last in the last minute, one of the last guests called him a, a cyber barnacle. No, he's you know, he's the <laughs> lion at the front of the you know the he, that's I, yeah. I always saw him like like a yeah, lion like, that, like guarding I, guarding the castle sort of thing. Um, I like that, yeah. And but one of the things we'll get into this a little bit in this minute that you have an actor like Barnard Hughes, who's you know a fine and accomplished actor, and then you have. David War David Warner, yeah. and you see him just sort of walking by. And one of the reasons why this works is that these two actors are are treating this seriously. They're not treating this as like a joke. They're not being campy. Yeah. They're yeah. not acting the way that some of the fine actors hammed it up in Flash Gordon. Yeah. But they're also having fun. So they're yeah. not treating it. This isn't like watching a Zack Snyder film where they're treating they're treating with as much fun as Children of Men or 1917 but like they yeah, yeah. these are two very good actors 
who have to do absurd things. Like seeing David Warner mm -hmm. stride saying, the, the, the Guardian is trying to help him, he thinks. Bring me the logic probe. <laughs> That's crazy. And yet yeah. the way he delivers it is, yeah, get the logic probe. This is... You know, that's one of the reasons why Sark is absolutely one of my favorite villains. And yeah. this comes a year after he did, he was evil in Time Bandits. That's so right, in back-to-back right. years, David Warner just brings the goodness to a, to a bad guy role. And it's such a, t uh, yeah, it's a testament to his talent because he's dressed in this, uh, uh, previous guests have called it like somebody cut up a sleeping bag. And uh, and just dressed him up in it, and he's got the 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 sort of uh, T square drafting helpers on the side of his head, and this in this paper costume in black and white, and saying stuff like "Bring on the logic probe," and you feel it, and you're like, "Oh no, what's the logic probe?" Because he's so uh, he's so good at it, and he gives it a hundred percent. I can't imagine what this set must have been like. Just look around. What the heck is going? What are we doing? <laughs> well, the set was just uh, the set was just black. Yeah, I mean, so they're just walking around a black set wearing these weird costumes saying things like, my user has information to use the I.O. tower. Like, what? Yeah, okay. What is going on here? But then, uh, you know, it, it pulls off because you have this sense of believability. And, of course, no one has more of a natural sort of believable quality to him as an actor than Jeff Bridges. And he, yeah. and he's not in this minute. He's in one of the future minutes that we're going to be doing. But... You know, he's uh, all this is crazy, and there's so much. What was it? Sid Mead, the the futurist, yeah. and um, and the the animation, and the shockingly little amount of actual computer animation. There's so much like backlit uh, traditional yeah. animation, but it's so yeah. imaginative, and that it's it's the thing that made me wish this was a bigger hit because the designers the production designers and everyone and, and the conceptual designers were basically told there's no boundaries of this there's no uh yeah. there's nothing to ground this to the real world so you can do whatever you want and yeah. you really see this when tron goes into the io tower like the way that it looks and the way that things are falling about but everything the look the design the, the color schemes where lines go just to me uh it, it makes this such a marvelous visual experience that even if the story even when the story goes off the rails a little bit it's such a visual bombardment yeah. that it makes it worth the makes it worth his while it really is and every different room is such a, a new journey into some new conceptual beautiful work like the the in the creator's commentary they talk about when tron walks into this uh, communication portal room that he's in where now suddenly we're in a room with no straight lines. We're in with a bunch of curves and globes and uh, round dioceses, and and there's like a, he, he like he walks into this dais that has sort of a sort of a fractal sort of pattern on it, and he stands in the the shaft of light. They really say that this is one of the one of the directions that they had when they were doing all the backgrounds was painting with light. They were like, we have to paint with light because there's no, it's just black, so we need to paint with light. Create the sets do what you want but it's called painting with light and they they really they all agree that this is one of the scenes where you really see that direction because everything is just uh just made of light and looks really really beautiful yeah and that there was no sense of letting anything uh hold you back in a way 
and I think it makes yeah. each of these each of these uh, visual motifs just so gorgeous. Uh, and he stands on the, the 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 light comes in. He pulls the frisbee out. I mean, this must have been yeah. so absurd on the set. I mean, it probably was just a frisbee. He's got a hockey helmet on and everything. But yeah. it's so yeah. glorious in and and the idea that they're shooting him in black and white. So therefore it has this sort of it's something you don't even notice the first forty times you watch it that they're actually black and white. But it yeah. makes the yeah. color it makes it something slightly off in reality and makes the yeah. colors even more vibrant. Yeah. And then he gets into the Star Trek teleporter. And yeah. uh there you go. Yeah, his uh, those uh, those frisbees. They actually had a guy, Sam Schatz, on the uh, on the set teaching them all how to use the frisbees for the frisbee fights. He was like a, a an Olympic frisbee champion or something, something like that. That was teaching them how to throw them all at each other. But I can concur. Like I don't I don't understand. Like it must have been such a strange experience for them to be on this black set in these costumes that people had literally drawn on with sharpies to get you know, these white white leotards that they had, like literally drawn on with sharpies to say okay. And now say these lines, I'm like what? And they have to imagine the entire set, and they don't understand any of the words they're saying. But and, I guess and remember the how of the... I'm I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bump into you there. But go ahead. Yeah, remember go ahead. how much computers were in their infancy at this point. Like there's things yeah, that they, they say. Around. They weren't around. They they like input output user programs. I mean, for most people, computers were just these big giant things with a reel-to-reel that uh, I don't even want to deal with that. I mean, this is 1982. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is before, I mean, if you watched it now with a sense of the internet and everything like that, that some of these things may make more sense. In 82, this was like, what are you even talking about? Because we're not that far away from, in 1982, we're still not that far away from punch cards, you know, like, and that's one of the, that thing that still helps this movie work i think especially in 1982 is because computers were still mysterious they were still like i don't know what their magic box is there's information involved uh who knows what's going on and so that sort of let this movie become what it became so it's like you can you can create this fantastical universe that uh everybody can roll with because nobody knows what's inside a computer it's a very it's a very this was the time for this movie to come out. It wouldn't, I'm not sure if it would have worked earlier or it would have been a lot trippier earlier, I think. And, uh, and, it, and later on, I think people would have had more of a grounding in what computer terms are. So a character named Ram, a bunch of regular people would be like, well, Ram doesn't make any sense. How does that pertain to his character? Because they would know what that actually means. But in 82, they're like, Ram, oh yeah, that's like something to do with computers. So it was a it was a good time for that. Well, I guess it wasn't the best time. Maybe if eighty one or eighty three would have been better because that summer the comp the competition in that summer I think that's half of what, what the uh, uh, my father worked in the computer industry when this film came out. And oh, so, okay. And so we did like when we visited my dad at work, and we always had like early prototypes of a home computers. Like we had a home computer oh, in okay. nineteen eighty three and eighty four with yeah. big, huge floppy disks. Like all you could really do was type your homework on it and do the 10, yeah. go to 20, 20, yeah. you know, you know, dude, it was like absolutely, it was all basic, but, um, yeah. but we were, and then the, my dad worked for digital 
when we were in Massachusetts, then he moved to Apple in the 80s. So we had early Mac, you know, Macintoshes and the very earliest laptops, which were like, this, it's like what Moses brought down from Mount yeah. Sinai. It's yeah. like, oh, look at that. It's yeah. only 40 pounds on your lap. Um, but yeah. uh, so like some of these computer stuff, we, I had sort of a passing uh, you know, not understanding, but I'd heard of some of them. So therefore, in an odd way, it's like, man, this this could be real. But it really tried to tap into when everyone suddenly had an Atari in their home. So everyone and everyone yeah. went to the arcade. So the idea, it's what made the opening sequence of it so brilliant that the the dude playing the the light cycle game and the idea of what if there really were people in those light cycles and and. Yeah. It was a nice way to kind of introduce people to the idea of this is the kind of world we're going to be entering. And, yeah. uh, and right in, like just right off the top of the movie, just like Flynn's quarter, light cycles, here we go. Well, it, it grounded it slightly into what, like, we can understand going to the um, arcade and playing a video game. Yeah. And so therefore, okay, that's what it's going to be like. And then they go into the, the world... And they have the sort of the weird meanwhile in the real world thing when, when Flynn is <laughs> typing. That. But that's the only time we go back and forth. Once Flynn gets sucked into the, the master control mainframe, yeah. we don't go back to the real world, which is brilliant. No. That it's our, no, once yeah. we're in this world, we're going to be in here till it shoots Flynn back out. Yeah. And I think that that's, uh, that was a tremendous amount of discipline from Lisberger and Kushner and all the, the filmmakers on the film that there was no like scene of like Alan one sitting at the terminal saying, I wonder where Tron is. Like, why can't I get yeah. that? You know? And yeah. Um, they, they, they had to open the way they did where they were intercutting between Flynn and Clue to say, you get it? Huh? Same dude, yeah. his program. Huh? Huh? Yeah. You understand? And, uh, <laughs> and, by the way, I, I know I'm talking about a different minute here, but I absolutely flipped out when I finally figured out that um, Dillinger's assistant, Peter, was also Sark's lieutenant on, yeah, yeah, on, yeah. on the ship there. Going, That's the same guy. Everybody's program. Like, like there's yeah. a janitor probably. Do you see there's a, there's probably a janitor <laughs> sort of cleaning up the the broken pieces of the light cycle. So, Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah now he's I, standing I on the thing and the yeah, the, the fractals, uh, the beautiful fractals where, and this does, there's, there's these, I made this statement that this film reminds me of nothing, but there are a couple of uh, shots that do kind of yeah back to like, this kind of reminds me of the v inside V'ger at the end of Star hey, Trek 1. sure. Yeah, very much so, yeah. And there is a uh, there's a shot in the next minute, not in this minute, but there's a shot in the next minute. And I'll get to it when we talk about the next minute. That really reminds me of the Close Encounters special edition, where he's yeah. where Richard Dreyfus is inside the mothership looking up. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I don't think they ripped it off. I just think that they kind of evoked the um, this kind of evoking of it. It kind of reminds me this, uh, this this room that he's in, which is called a communication bell in the in the novelization they call it a or in the screenplay they call it a communication bell that he's standing inside, which I which I think is a pretty cool word for that room. But it also really reminds me of a Roger Dean painting. You know, I remember Roger Dean did all those um, you know record covers for 
you know, Journey and Foreigner or whatever. Well, Journey did the music for for the end credits. Oh yeah. <laughs> that may be right. a subconscious uh, uh, connection, as they do only solutions at the uh, end yeah. credits of uh, Tron. It's, it's like yeah. we're trying to sell some Journey albums here. So, yeah, we got those movie soundtrack dollars. You know, the uh, one of the th- I wanted to talk a little bit, just a bit about Logic Probes themselves, because he says bring in the Logic Probe, and I was like, is that just some nonsense they made up for the film? But it's a thing. There is a there's a tool called a Logic Probe. And it's a uh, real world. It's it's invented in 1968 by Gary Gordon, and it's you you it just has a single prong, not two. But you touch it to a logic circuit to see if it's in uh, uh, one state, state one or state two, like a high logic state or a low logic state, and that's all it does. It's just like a sensor, and it's usually powered by the circuit itself. So it's just like a measuring tool. So it's not at all what's being. Uh, shown here it's not a it's not something that you would use to correct anything or power through something or destroy something so it's just a couple of it is a couple of words that they just picked up and decided to use but another thing that i like is it's like you were saying before this whole sequence with the logic probe coming up to the door and it's like a gray transparent cube with gold glittering on it and then it sort of like goes through a couple of pulses and refines into a more a uh, shape with more polygons on it so it's more of a tuning fork and then it starts slamming the door with uh with these yellow bolts of energy that are really starting to hammer the door that's all hand animated and it's like you were saying there's no there's no cg in this scene but because the the things are so well done with the with the with the flat surfaces it looks like it's cg but it wasn't and that was something that a lot of the the animator John Van Vliet he would feel a lot of frustration when he'd see like the light cycle transformation sequence. He'd see that on, on the cover of some magazine and it would be like, it's amazing what they can do with computers these days. And he's like, no, I did that. <laughs> I did that. That, that, that wasn't CG. That was me using stills in my own, you know? Like, so it's like you said, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of anime, a shockingly high amount of hand animated stuff in here. And, Still a whole lot of CG for the time. I think there's like 14 or 15 minutes of pure CG in here, which was like way more than had ever been done, uh, like like by a, a factor. Do you know what it kind of reminds me of it is there's another film which is considered revolutionary in its use of CG, which is Jurassic Park, which yeah. also, when you take two steps back, has a lot less CG than people think it has. Because yeah. uh, there was uh, there were practical raptors in that Stan Winston made, and of course a full size T Rex head and and neck and and torso that they made. But one of the reasons why it feels like there's more, and I think one of the reasons why it feels like there's more CGI in Tron than there actually is, is because they did such a wonderful job creating a uniform look to it. It's not yeah. like okay, here comes the CG stuff. Okay, now here comes the animation. It's not, you know, in Jurassic Park, it wasn't like, oh, that's clearly a CGI raptor. Oh, that's clearly the puppet. It's they, they looked the same, and they had yeah. the same sort of sense of weight and the same texture. That So yeah. when there are shots in Jurassic Park where you starts with a CG, it starts with the practical T-Rex and then turns into the, 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 the CGI walking T-Rex. And I'm sure yeah. there are parts of this that the CGI stuff 
looks like the animated stuff. So you've created, it's about world building and using the tools and whether it is the, the animator you were mentioning doing the light cycle or the actual yeah. CGI stuff or the beautiful, let's not forget the beautiful matte paintings and the glass yeah. paintings that were done in this as well, that they yeah. all had a, one didn't look so wildly different from the other, which is yeah. in a way, that's credit to Lisberger, and that the director yep. made sure that there was a unified look and feel to a film which is bananas. It's just a it's a bananas film, and it's not just that the uh, the actual art and the actual hand animation was done. There was three different computer animation companies that were used on the film using three different computers. Right, there was a, a one place doing the light cycles and the recognizers. There was one place doing Sark's cruiser and the solar sailor. There was one place doing bit and the opening credits, and they were using three totally different computers with different requirements. And so to get them to all produce stuff that also looks like they all inhabit the same world, like in a few minutes we'd get the the recognizers chasing the solar sailor, and that was two different computer houses working on those two different vehicles. So to get them to look like it's not. Uh, one thing to another you know like one oh here's 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 the scenes that they did and here's the scenes that they did it all holds together and that is a huge feat like you said because a lot of times like in jurassic park you'll get movies that you have the re the real world practical effects and you have the cg effects and they don't talk to each other because one place is in burbank and one place is in new york or something like that and they don't they don't talk to each other so when they're cutting between the shots you'll have a difference in scale where the monster will like reach out in CG and then the monster's practical hand will come into the shot in the next shot and it's an, it's it's a different scale all of a sudden. You know, it's big enough to wrap around the entire person in the practical, but then in the previous shot it's a little bit smaller than that. Yeah, and, I, I I've you, seen in you, in you some know. of I'm so, I'm sorry, in in some of the uh I remember there's some scenes like in in Justice League where there were some scenes that felt so computer. I felt like I was watching a cartoon and oh, then yeah, some totally. scenes that look like, Oh, that's an actual piece of stunt work. And so when you have it, it's like, Oh, there's a computer up. Oh, that's a practical. It completely yeah. takes you out of it. And yeah. this is one where they had nothing to, they, they didn't have a guideline to, to go by and yeah. they managed to pull it off as well as they did. And as effectively as they did. I think a lot of it is because conceptually, at a conceptual level, this was this movie was supposed to be entirely animated. Yeah, it it, it was supposed to be just one long animation uh, from the from the beginning, and so then they started. They were like, okay, we'll need to involve some some uh, some some real live actors, and Disney's involved, and we'll get some, you know. So it sort of morphed into something else, but from its conception, it was always going to be all in that world. I read something that they were going to, along what you were just saying. Do you remember the film Water Babies? It was a, a British uh, film. James Mason was a voice on it from the late 70s. I don't know how I saw this. I, I, when we lived overseas, we saw it. So it may not have made it over to America. I was, But um, it was, it, it kind of had a similar structure of Tron of this kid. And he's like, he's, taken into this magical world he falls into the water and he's taken to him in this magical world but the bookends of the film are live action including james mason and then when he falls in the water into the magical world some of the kids a cartoon and all oh, these okay. like water creatures are cartoon and james mason all the people 
it has that Wizard of Oz Tron quality where every person you meet in the real world or suddenly the voice of fish or octopus or whatever it was in it. And then okay. when he comes back out, it's back in the real world. That Tron very easily could have had that sort of, um, for the lack of a better word, structure. That when yeah. Flynn gets sucked into the the MCP, that it's all animation now. And you have the voice of you know, David Warner and Bruce Boxleitner and Sidney Morgan and everyone. Yeah. But the fact that they're live action, but shot differently, it gives it, 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 it's more memorable and it has a more funky feeling to it, I think. Oh, for sure. For sure. And also the way that they speak to each other. I think that, you know, they could easily have talked to each other like, hello, program 36. How are you? Not too bad. And, but they just talk to each other like regular people and they're filmed instead of animated. So I think that's, definitely part of what makes it so unique i think they might they could they could have used a little cutting back and forth between the real world because we a lot of people that i've talked to said that they weren't they didn't realize until they were adults that they were the same actors yeah that, I, like well that, like, i figured it out when i was 12 i figured yeah, i was 12 so sure. i'm smarter than them but like flynn for sure because you see him get sucked in but there was a bunch of people that saw it when they were seven or eight and then when they were like 13 or 14 they're like oh Oh, Dillinger is Sark. Oh, Yori is, uh, you know, Dr. Laura Baines. But but I think if they'd been, yeah, if you'd seen Alan typing into his computer, maybe it would have been more confusing. I don't know. It would have helped with that sort of ticking clock. Countdown. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm of the mindset I'm glad that when we're in there, we stay there. It would have been more cliche to do it back and forth like that. I think it would have made it less of a less of a unique film. I definitely agree with you there for sure. Um, and so, uh, actually, it's not this minute. He doesn't let go of it until the next minute. So that's right. Okay, we're getting we're getting close to the end of this minute here. One thing I just wanted to talk about is Dumont's costume, because uh, he's got the close-ups of him. He, he almost looks like he's got Warhammer armor on, like a big mech suit or something. Like I kind of want him to stand up and also have giant giant legs and, <laughs> and like huge arms and have some kind of power armor on. But I wonder what position he's in inside. Because it looks like he's kind of crouching with his with his arms out, so that's not something that's comfortable to to hold for any amount of time. One of the effects people brought his helmet home to detail it, and was shocked because he was like, "Oh, this is like forty pounds. This is really heavy." But uh, that actor Barnard Hughes hadn't complained at all. So what a uh, pro, I man! Hope... What a pro, super pro. He's like sixty. I think he's sixty-seven or sixty-five in this uh, in this movie, and. A professional actor for a super long time, so I re- I just hope that he wasn't in, <laughs> in too much. Yeah, he, I mean he's a he's a fine actor and he's a he's a great, you know the term he's a that guy. Um, yeah, he's and, a that guy for sure. And and always you know always a reliable you know that guy. I remember he was in he did a lot of television in the seventies as well, but yeah. um, you know always a very believable actor, and it takes that sort of believability to play off a scene where you look like the lion in front of the New York public library. Yeah. Yeah. And to say the, to say, and his hands are kind of moving too. Like he's kind of like, you know, just that you have this fine actor on his hands and knees, like in Giris and with a 40 pound, uh, you know, Egyptian helmet on his head. And you have a couple of stage hands swiveling him around like a price (laughs) is right set, you know? Yeah, Yeah. And that he's able to, pull off a scene 
with a certain amount of, first of all, world weariness at the beginning where, yeah. where he's like, what yeah. do you want? And, and then, and, and also the sort of what he said, something like, you know, if you've been around, if I've been around as long as me, you've heard lots of promises, but then yeah. has the compassion and then has the gravitas of saying this, the, the prayer. And then, yeah. and then understands the importance of letting him pass and hoping that he's right. Uh, it just, it's in the hands of an actor who would ham it up. Again, I hate to keep flinging it back to Flash Gordon because I like Flash Gordon as a yeah. comedy, but it's a very frustrating film for me personally because nobody took it seriously. And, yeah. and it, you know, it made for this kind of trippy queen music video, but yeah. you kind of wish that someone could, someone treat it like there's there's well yeah the the yeah the whole movie's uh the whole movie's a lark yeah you know you're just having a it's like watching i don't know caddyshack or something you're like oh yeah it's a comedy oh, man. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's definitely a comedy, a comedy. Right? yeah which I, again i really enjoy that film but I, I totally hear what you're saying in in a different actor's hands with a different director this this could have been a comedy this could have been, been a, a because Flash Gordon also is a film which the look and feel of it. I mean, it's, it's this weird sort of uh, cocaine-filled fusion yeah. of yeah. 1930s serial with 1970s disco and, you know, with Queen blasting through the whole thing. Um, but this could have been just a trippy, goofy drug comedy <laughs> with a, yeah. under the Disney label. and. Yeah. The actors make it a little more, and 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 which is one reason why I think it's a more rewatchable movie than, say, Flash Gordon for me. I, mean, I know some people will disagree yeah. with me on that because Flash Gordon has its big defenders, but um, I'm more of a Tron guy. Yeah, I def I, I I hear you. I think it's it's apples and oranges. I like them both, but I I definitely hear what you're saying, and the the actors here really do elevate the material. Yeah, from what it might from what it might have been in the hands of, of lesser actors, like especially like Jeff Bridges is so natural. Yeah. You know, and he, he was, the, he was the one that got it. Everybody else sort of said no, like, yeah. like Bruce Boxleitner. He was filming a Western at the time. He's on the back of a horse reading the script with a fake mustache. And he's like, what programs portals? I don't, but when they, when they brought it to Jeff Bridges, he was like far out, man. Sounds great. Let's do it. But and, uh, also Jeff Bridges is, he's always been one of my favorite long before Lebowski. And I think that yeah. he should have won his Oscar for the Fisher King in 91, which he's way before he did. Yeah. That was a, that was a, that was a late Oscar that he got just cause it's high time. Yeah. But I mean, like crazy, he, heart. crazy heart was a good movie. But it was yeah, fine. It was fine, but he should have won it for Fisher King. Uh, there's several other films, you know, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. He may have, yeah. You know, I don't remember who was he was up against, but um, but one of the things about him is that he a he has a he has a very natural believability to him, but yeah. he also wasn't treating it like it's Hamlet either. He was having fun. He understood that yeah. if you, if you treat this with a naturality, but with a sense of fun, this could be a really fun ride. Even when he gets you know going back to an earlier minute in the arcade, where he's like because. Man, somewhere yeah. in one of these, <laughs> he's, just, he just, he's just so angry and flustered yeah. that no one under, no one believes him. That's one of my favorite deliveries in the entire film. When he's like, "Because, man, like it's just." Uh, it's but he also does the. I, I I don't know if it's in the script, but just him saying that is a big door. 
<laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's in that. That's in the script, and that's a real door. That's the actual back of the Lawrence Livermore Laser Laboratory where they filmed all the interior scenes. But that's the a sense actual, like, of there's a sense of fun and yeah. fun and believability that I think he got it in a weird way, the same way that Harrison Ford got Han Solo of how this is the attitude you have to play it with, and I think yeah. that's. Uh, I, I think it's what makes the film work. Yeah, it's this leveled thing where he understands he's in a serious movie, not a silly movie, but then he has to go further and bring a fun aspect to it. So it's it's not, you know, he's going two levels instead of just saying, ah, oh, it's a silly movie. So. And David Warner gets it too, I think. Whether or not oh, he yeah. got it well, in part... he got he He gets it, I think, in the way that he's a very well-educated actor and he shows up and he does the job. Right. Where they're like, this is what you're doing today. He's like, okay. All right. Well, I got I some David Warner thoughts, but I'm going to leave him for a later minute. So, yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay. Well, it's funny you should say that he's uh, that Dumont is like the lions guarding because in the novel he's described as a sphinx. Oh, they. Oh, yeah. That okay. That makes sense because he is kind of like the sphinx in front of the. Uh, uh, the the pyramid there that makes sense that makes sense yeah so he's like sphinx like and so there's there's that kind of aspect was brought into his which i like to go through at the end of the minute i like to go through the differences between the novel and the screenplay go ahead and, and there's not there's not too much now except that in the novel flynn is now part of the red guard he uh he he he, he turned himself red and he caught up and then he's he's just part of the part of the red guard now he doesn't sort of sneak in like in a later minute here right and uh bit is still there oh okay. in the screenplay in the screenplay bit is still there but disappears uh later and also sark has some different lines in the screenplay where he says oh that old fruitcake dumont he'll pay for this and i'm kind of glad that they uh that yeah they i'm that. glad that that's <laughs> i that wouldn't glad have that been that's not that wouldn't have been appropriate. So some some of the some of the cuts, it's like anything when you go back to the roots. Some of the cuts you're like, oh, I wish that was still in. But most of the cuts, I'm like, yeah, good call, good call. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that takes us up to the end of minute sixty-seven. Unless you got something else. No, that's all I got. I can't wait to talk about minute sixty-eight. If that's a if that is a uh, a teaser for minute sixty-eight, I'm <laughs> drooling to talk about minute sixty-eight. So then let's let's get right to it, man. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. Well, that takes us in. Uh, do you want to talk to, do you want to tell people where they can find you if they want to hear more of you? Um, you can follow me at Sully Baseball on Twitter. And there you can see links to both Locked On MLB podcast and also for fans of Movie by Minute, you can follow uh, Bull Durham Minute. And we're also at Bull Durham Min there. And I'm not 100% sure when this is going to drop, but uh, uh, I Bull Durham Minute might be wrapping up then. And when it does, uh, I have an idea what I'll do for a follow-up. But I'm, but locked on MLB. If you're a baseball fan, go follow that. And uh, I'm also a guest on a lot of movie by minute podcasts. So just <laughs> follow follow Sully Baseball, and I post everything there on uh, Twitter and Sully Baseball Podcast on Instagram. Right on. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're at tronologicallyspeaking.com. We're at tronologicallyspeaking on Twitter or drop us a, an email at tronologicallyspeaking at gmail, or go to Facebook for the Tronologically Speaking Minute-by-Minute listeners page. Um, also, just go down to moviesbyminutes.com in general and see if your favorite movie's there, because there's like 150 movies there and counting so far at the time of this recording. 
And uh, special thanks to the Star Wars Minute that started it all, because they really kicked off something here that's really quite quite special, I think. And if your film isn't there, if your favorite film isn't on that list, then consider just firing it up and doing it yourself, because it's uh, I think it's a wonderful experience for anybody to do a de- deep dive on one of their favorite movies. Uh, at the end of each podcast, I like to do a little uh, end of line on three with the guest co-host. You're ready for some of that? Okay. One, two, three. End of line. End of line.